Go ahead and pray and get started this morning. <clears throat> Father, uh, we're going to be talking about doubt this morning, and it's a, it's a very real thing, and, and we see it in the Psalms, and we see it in our own lives, and in our own hearts, and in our friends, and, and I just pray that somehow you would you'd give us wisdom this morning, you'd, you'd give us knowledge on how to deal with doubt. Doubt is always going to be there. But maybe you could provide us wisdom on how to deal with it and, and just encourage us this morning as we walk out excited about our faith, not timid or afraid. And so we would just pray that for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we're talking about doubt this morning, and um, I don't know about you, but it's a pretty gnarly topic because sometimes we go to Scripture and we read things like Job. Um, Job basically says, hey, God, um, the good guys are losing and the bad guys are winning. There's no justice. You said there would be justice, and I don't see justice. And at the end of Job, God kind of talks to Job, but he never really gives him an answer as to why there's injustice. He just says, I'm God, and, and that's that. And I think we take that answer, I take that answer, and we run with it, but sometimes we're left asking, hey, what happened to the answer? Maybe we're just glossing over that with religion. And, 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 but where's the answer to this whole idea of there's no justice going on in the world? And, and we, we talk about Jesus hanging on the cross, and, and he gets to the end, and he says, it, it's this guttural heart cry before he dies, as he's dying, and he cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And instead of entering into that emotion, we gloss over it again with religious talk and basically say, oh, well, that was just part of the grand plan. And, and, um, and he was quoting the Psalms there. You know, I mean, and we missed the emotion completely. Like, you know, Jesus is going, oh, this is that moment when I was supposed to quote the Psalms. Let me, let me make sure I get the right translation on this, you know. And we miss the emotion. And we, we, we kind of like, when we look at that, maybe, we begin to say, geez, you know, there's... That confuses me. Like, what's going on there? And, and it just doesn't sit well. And, and the religious answers kind of just sometimes ring hollow. And Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, like little itty-bitty tiny faith, you can say to this mountain, like, just get up and go, and you could, like, cast a mountain into a sea. Um, well, I've never seen that. Not literally like that. And, and sometimes I think we look at that and we ask some difficult questions and we say, well, I don't understand that. It, it seems to imply something that's huge and grand. And, and what if I don't feel like I've seen that? Where, where is that going on? What am I supposed to look at? How do, I, how do I digest that? And I think sometimes some of us come to the faith and come to Scripture look at our lives and, and we think, you know what, um, this is hard. And the religious cliches like offend us and, and make us angry and make us want to put our fingers in our ears and scream and holler and we get bitter at like this, the people with like childlike faith, simple faith. And we just want to like grab them and choke them. Have you ever felt like that? Um, you know, it's like the have a nice day people, you know, and always smiling, and you just want to choke them. And, 
we begin to realize that life isn't always easy. And like we said last week, we have to learn to sometimes live the question. To live the question. And all our questions aren't going to be answered, and we kind of have to live in the tension of that. And, and I love this uh, quote. This is the book Crazy Love that's kind of the all-church read right now. It's by Francis Chan, and, and so we're hoping that everyone in the church kind of read this. It'll change your life. But I love what he says on page 33, and uh, it's just a simple question he asks. And he says this, can you worship a God who isn't obligated to explain his actions to you? It's one of the things that we have to ask ourselves as we live kind of um, in this life is, um, can we have a God that isn't obligated to explain all his actions to us? Because he's not going to explain all his actions to us. I'm, I'm fond of saying that life is messy, people are messy, and God is mysterious. So we want to we tidy up and clean up the messiness more than it is. We're always trying to push it a little bit more towards uh, heaven on earth or utopia, and there's a tension there. And we're always trying to ask God for a little bit more in the way of answers than what he's going to give. And, and there's always going to be a little more mystery than what we're comfortable with. And, and there's a tension there. And we have to live in that tension. And can we worship a God? Can we sing praise songs to a God who isn't obligated to give us all the answers? There's a distinction I think we need to make when we come to this topic of doubt. And it's an important distinction. We tend to think black and white here. And it has to do with certainty and uncertainty. And the word certainty is is an all or nothing word. What it basically means is like, You're either there or you're not. It's like a light switch, on or off. I'm either certain or or I'm not certain. There's no real middle ground. And so when we we introduce this question or this tension because of the messiness of life and the mystery of God and that we're not always going to have our questions answered, it means we can't be certain. And if we can't be certain... Well, there's this kind of thought or this temptation that that we then have to swing, pendulum swing, all the way to the other side because if I can't be certain, then there's there's uncertainty. And if there's uncertainty, then what can I know? I'm on off instead of on on. Does that make sense? And I think what we miss here is that there's another word, and it's called certitude. Okay, certitude. Certainty is the all or nothing word. Certitude is a degreed property. It has levels to it. It, it, You can be 50-50 on something or you can be like 90-10 on something and there's levels of certitude. And so some of the things that we hold true, we hold really strongly. I would go to the wall for these. You you could put a, I mean, I I would go to the wall for these. I would die for these things. God is is real, and I believe Jesus is his son. He's died for me, okay? But then there's other doctrinal issues. You know, I'm not going to tell you which ones because I'll get nasty notes, you know, but, but there's some things I'm like 55, 45 on. Like, man, there's, there's good, godly, like, knowledgeable men on both sides or, or debates that have been going on for 2,000 years, and I can see both sides of the argument, and I'm just a little bit more on this side, okay? And, and so I've got some, some measure of certitude, I don't have certainty. And I think there's things too where when we're not talking about intellectual things, we're just talking about basic trust and faith. And I'll look at my life and say, where's God in these details? Where is he in my circumstances? And, and maybe 
this month or this year, I'm not 100% like it's, you know, yay, God, go team, me and God, and we're taking over the world. Maybe now it's a little bit more like 60-40. I know God's there. I, I believe he has a plan. It's just, I, I, I just don't see it, and it's harder for me right now. I'm, I'm trusting it, but it's just not as strong as it once was. And so I'm crying out for more faith, more belief that it would grow. Does that make sense? And I think one of our problems with doubt is just that, that we, we leave it in the category of uncertainty. And so when we, we run into mess or mystery, we just think, oh man, I've lost my faith because I, I've got doubt and I've got questions. And it's like, no, you're a human. You're a human and you, you're like moving along these levels of certitude reaching for more faith, reaching for more trust, and that's an okay thing. It's an okay thing, okay? So this morning, as we're talking about doubt, I think we could, we could exhaust this subject and do like a 10-week series on it, but we want to just try and give a quick shot. And so what I want to do is, is give you three ways that we combat doubt. So when we're talking about growing your faith or, or dealing with uncertainty or doubt or or lack of trust, or unbelief, these problems that we face. Um, three different things that we can do, actively do, that I think God has given us to, to combat that, okay? And the first one is this. You can get your questions answered. You can get your questions answered. Dostoevsky said this. He says, It is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. My Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. I came to faith through doubt, intellectually. Like, man, 2,000 years ago, those people were really stupid. They probably believed resurrections were like happening, like just willy-nilly everywhere, you know. And, and then what did they know, you know. And, and I just, I kind of had all these doubts and things like that. And my faith was born out of that, asking questions and analyzing things intellectually. And one of the things we can do is get our questions answered if you're telling the truth and someone doesn't believe you, okay, we've all been in this position, you're telling the truth and someone doesn't believe you, what do you want that person to do? You want them to ask as many questions as they possibly can to give you ample opportunity to provide them with answers and details so that they can begin to understand that what you're saying is true. Does that make sense? If you're being uh, tried for a crime, like you're, you're facing the death penalty, and there's a skeptical jury there, but you know you didn't do it, what do you want? You want the trial to go all the way so that as many different things can come out about you, your character, the details, your alibi, so that this jury doesn't make a snap decision based on one little thing that really doesn't correlate with the facts. Does that make sense? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am true. He also said, if you seek, you will, you will find, and if you ask, you will receive, and if you knock, the door will be opened. In the book of Proverbs, it says, pursue knowledge and pursue wisdom and, and rigorously chase after these things, okay? All throughout Scripture, we see that, that the Bible wants us to to. to Not just run away with our doubts. Scripture demands of us this kind of rigorous engagement where we, where we pursue 
these fuzzy things, these doubts, these questions that we have, we've got to do it. Jesus would want us. He never shied away from a question. His disciples were always asking him sometimes seemingly ridiculous things, and he would give them answers. And sometimes we hang on to this one little doubt, like, you know what? I can't handle this Christian faith because this one little thing bugs me. So I'm going to go hide in a corner and and try and um, brainwash myself into thinking that that's not really there, that I don't have this doubt or this question, even though I do. And the real thing we should do is try and get answers. We should try and get answers. G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, The point of having an open mind, like having an open mouth, is to close it on something solid. The point of having an open mind, like having an open mouth, is to close it on something solid. I've seen people go 20 years with a question that they've never had answered. And they'll stay away from Christianity because of it. And then in in one moment, that question gets answered and they're just like, holy, you got to be kidding me. It was that simple? There's an answer to that all along? And I've gone like 20 years and everything changes. And like with just this like momentum, they swing back into the faith and their life starts to change. And they begin getting excited and there's fruit and they're, they're just like gung-ho. And you're like, what happened? And it was the answer to one little question that was tripping them up. And so we believe that, that answering questions is a huge thing. We've got um, a guy at church here on staff called uh, volunteer staff named Rick Gerhardt. And Rick has a whole apologetics ministry, and apologetics is basically just giving you reasons to believe in Christian doctrines and in the Christian faith. And Rick keeps a blog, and you can find it off our webpage, and he just blogs about different intellectual, rational, logical reasons for believing in the Christian faith and, and different things that Christians believe in. We, we put on this whole apologetics conference just a couple weeks ago and brought in Christian philosophers from around the country to basically talk about reasons for believing in our Christian faith. Rick is teaching a class at Kilns College uh, starting the week of January 25th on science and the Bible. You ever had any questions on, like, science and the Bible? Well, Rick's a scientist, and he's also a, a biblical apologist. It's going to be a fascinating class. I just recommend anyone that's got those questions, take that class. Get your questions answered. We're not in the business at Antioch of just ignoring that side of things and acting like it's just easy for everybody to believe and we're just going to paste little smiles on our faces up here and be all warm and fuzzy and have a nice day and, and just miss the fact that the Bible tells us to rigorously pursue these things these questions, and, and ask and find out and just, just pursue it. I don't know how to talk about it because it's been part of my life for like 12 years, and this feels really like basic, but maybe it's not to you. We've just got to pursue these things. So the first thing is just this, get your questions answered. Get your questions answered. Second thing is this, how to deal with your doubts. Choose to obey. Choose to obey. Now, what in the world does obedience have to do with doubt? You know, I mean, you've had doubt before. Think about it. You might be a person with doubts right now. And what in the world does obedience have to do with doubt? Seems like a logical question, right? Here's what Kierkegaard says. Kierkegaard says, It is so hard to believe because it is so hard to obey. It is so hard to believe because it is so hard to obey. Because these words, trustworthiness, 
faithfulness, these, these words we use of God, imply that we trust first. God is worthy of our trust, and then we put our trust in him. God is faithful and worthy of our faith, so we put our faith in him. So it's kind of this transaction element. We, we sense God's trustworthiness, worthy to be trusted. We sense his faithfulness, and then we respond by putting our trust in him or our faith in him, right? Does that make sense? And when we have doubts about the trustworthiness of God or the faithfulness of God, and we don't want to put our trust in him, it makes it hard for us to follow him and do what he says to do. What's another word for following God and doing what he says to do? Obey. So when we have doubts and we feel less confident about trusting him, it makes us harder to follow him and do what he says, which means we don't obey. Does that make sense? That's what obedience has to do with doubt. Is they're, they're tied and they're connected that way. It's a transaction thing. Let me give you a couple of examples. First one is money. Now, I'm not talking to you this morning if you have no money. Okay, I'm talking to you this morning if you have money and you're worried about your money. Because here's what happens. God says, give me, let's back up real quick. I think we've got um, two verses on what faith is and what trust is. So um, we can backtrack to those real quick. But Hebrews First, and it says this, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, number one, and number two, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Second verse out of Romans says this, no distrust made Abraham waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith, giving glory to God, and listen to this, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So faith isn't just, we talked about this last week, faith isn't just believing that God is up there, that that God exists. Faith includes this, the idea that I believe God has made a promise to me and he's going to deliver on that promise. That his character is such that he will follow through on the promises he made to me. He's faithful, he's trustworthy. Okay? Now, when it comes to money, the promise God has made, and we get this wrong all the time, okay? we think that, that giving God money is all about buying God off. It's a religious duty, tithes and gifts and offering, and we buy God off that way. Here's my money, I can check my checkbox, and then move on. What Scripture actually tells us is we honor God with the beginnings of our money, and in doing so, we're trusting that God is now going to take care of us reward us, open up the floodgates of heaven, provide for us in ways that we could have never seen. That's why we give to him on faith, because we have no idea how giving our money away is going to lead to blessing. We can't see it. But the promise is, give to me, and then I will take care of you. It's faith. So see how that goes? Now, all the guys on TV take advantage of those verses. And so we pendulum swing away from it because we don't want to look like the guys on TV. So we don't talk about this thing that God has made promises with regard to money. Okay, but he has. So here's how we learn to see how obedience and doubt come together. We, we see it in our money. So when you have money and you don't have any worries or doubts, it's easy to buy God off. 
when you begin to worry about your money, I don't, I don't feel secure in my money. What could happen? Things are dicey. The tendency is this, is not to all of a sudden give away and trust God. The tendency is to circle the wagons. And we circle the wagons financially and pull it all in so that we can play it safe and be under control. And what happens when we do that is we circle the wagons with God on the outside. And what God's saying is, no, see, you give to me first so that when you circle the wagons, it's a good thing to circle the wagons, but then when you circle the wagons, I'm on the inside. And I'm able to take care of you because here's the transaction. You put your faith in me, you trust me, and I will reward you. Does that make sense? And so we really struggle with that. Ooh, that's a tough one. It's a tough one. Do I really believe in that? I struggle with doubt. Now here's how this choose to obey principle comes in. How are you going to know if God really is going to follow through on that promise to take care of you financially? There's only one way to find out. How, how do you know that anything is going to bear up your weight or support you when you've got doubts about it? You have to test it. You have to trust it. God has made a promise, and he says, I will take care of you financially if you do this. And so we're standing here, and we have our fears, and we have our doubts, but you know what will take away the doubt? is the experience of God delivering on that promise. How do we get the experience of God delivering on that promise? We trust him. God rewards those who trust him. And then all of a sudden, we're talking about the testimony that we have. And remember that? We, we want the testimony without the test. We want the testimony without the test, usually. The way we can have our doubt taken away is by choosing to obey. Here's another area where it comes into play, and that's morality. Morality. Now, morality and doubt have, have gone hand in hand ever since Adam and Eve. Because when Adam and Eve took and ate of the fruit, what were they basically saying? They were basically saying, God, you've given us instructions. You have a will for my life. You've mapped it out on how we're supposed to go, but we don't trust you. We have doubts about whether that's the best way to live. So instead of following and acting in faith, we're going to sin and we're going to partake of this fruit because we're going to test this, this road. We, we think we might have found a better way. It's been there from the beginning and so we're still there now. We're, we're saying, you know what? Um, I know that I shouldn't be looking at pornography. But uh, what does it really hurt? And when my kids get older, maybe I'll stop. Or, hey, I know I shouldn't be doing this or that with my girlfriend, but um, everyone else is doing it, and what's the big deal? And you know what? I, why can't I have both? Why can't I be a Christian, yet also live this way too? Because you know what? What's the big deal? And we kind of go down this road, and there's a verse in Proverbs that says this. It says, don't envy the wicked. Why does it say not to envy the wicked? Why? Because, because we do. I mean, show me a person that's never looked at sin or someone sinning and gone, gee, there's a part of me that wishes I could do that. There's a part of me that wishes I had permission to join in because it looks fun. 
I mean, it looks enticing. And God says, go this way, and you'll have peace and joy and happiness and pleasure forevermore at my right hand. Yet this looks really enticing. And man, I just wish I could go find out. So Proverbs says, don't envy the wicked. Well, when we kind of say, hey, well, I'll just make peace with both of these things, what we're really doing is saying this, um, I'll be a Christian only so far, and then I'm going to go play around with the world only so far. Maybe I'll cheat in business because my business partner is partner does. Maybe I'll tell little white lies. Maybe I'll gossip because, you know what, my prayer group makes it easy to gossip. or you know, Whatever it is, I'll just do it because it's really not that bad, but it allows me to like, get the best of both worlds. Here's what I can tell you if that's the way you're living. You're in the worst possible position of all people. I used to run a college ministry for like a decade. You know, I was always doing college ministries. And, and, you, and I think 20-somethings, we really struggle with this. Okay? And I would tell people, I'm like, man, I pity you. It'd be so miserable to be you. And they just look at me like, how can you say that to me? Like, that's really offensive. I'm like, no, I'm serious it'd be so awful to be you. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, because you get the worst of all possible situations. You don't get to just go sin and enjoy it and not have any guilt because you know too much for that. Okay? You don't just get to, like, throw caution to the wind and really be a sinner, like sin and sin well. Okay? And yet, you, you also are not being obedient enough to get the rewards that God promises to those who obey. You don't get any of the fruit, the, the joy and the, the like happiness and the peace and like just the good vibe and everything else. You don't get any of that because that comes through obedience. So your lack of morality here and trying to play both sides is causing you to get nothing good from either side. Choose one or the other, but you, you're, you must be miserable. That's what I used to always say to people. Okay, now your doubts will keep you in your position of doubt, if you let it. We use doubt as an excuse. We use doubt as a permission to sin. There's nothing that causes people to, to stumble more. I'll give you an example. Nothing that causes people to stumble more than a, than a pastor who falls into sin. Nothing that causes people to stumble faster, I think, than a pastor falls into sin. Why does that lead other people into sin? It leads them into sin because it gives them permission. It gives them permission. Well, if he did it, geez, man, what's the point of this whole thing anyways? Why would I go down this road and miss out on the fun if even that guy goes and gets a little bit of the forbidden fruit? So, you know what? I'll, I'll just follow suit and dabble. And what you're doing is you're keeping yourself in a position of doubt because God responds when we put our faith in him. And we put our faith in him through our obedience. So God says, obey out of faith. I will bless you. And when God blesses you, it takes away your what? It takes away your doubt. Why? Because it answers your questions. God, where are you? I don't sense you. Well, let me obey you in an act of faith. You're going to respond, wow, God, I just experienced your faithfulness. My certitude went way up. My doubt went away. But if I don't trust God, and if I'm trying to look for permission to sin or, or whatever, I'm trying to like envy the wicked or whatever, I'm going to be so not concerned with obeying and having my doubts answered and my questions answered that I'm just going to be caught in the middle. 
I think it's the worst possible position to be in. Bonhoeffer says this, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. We need to obey God if we want to deal with our doubt. There's a connection between our obedience and our doubt. There's also a connection between our obedience and our happiness. John Bunyan in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, said this, There was a castle called Doubting Castle. The owner whereof was giant despair. Let me kind of illustrate this point one more way to you, that obedience is going to affect your faith and, and therefore your doubt. Let me, I mean, if you want to turn to John, you can turn with me real quick. But there's a connection here between our obedience and our trust. John chapter 15, verse 5, it's a famous passage on the vine and the branches. And Jesus uses this kind of metaphor to describe our relationship to him. But listen to the way he says it in John 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from you, apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine and you are the branches. And if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's the idea. Um, you picture a tree or a, 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 a vine or whatever it is, okay? A branch has to be actually connected to that vine or that tree, right? And the, the sap goes up, nourishes the branch. The branch, therefore, produces fruit. You picturing that? You put even a, a, an inch between the branch and the vine or the, the tree trunk or whatever, the, the sap, the life, isn't going to flow into the branch. What's going to happen to the branch? It's going to wither and die, right? Okay, here's the point I want you to remember. Your proximity to God is prior to the fruit or blessing in your life. Your dependence upon God, whether you abide in God, whether you follow him closely and obey, your proximity is logically prior to the fruit in your life. This has to be here first in order for the fruit to come out in your life. Does that make sense? What takes away your doubt more than anything else? The presence of of, of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, the blessings, the rewards that God has promised. If you want these rewards that will take away your doubt, what comes logically first? Your proximity to God. So the first thing was this, get your questions answered about the faith. And the second thing is this, obey. Choose to obey. In the middle of your doubt, choose to obey. Doubt is a, is a kind of state of mind. It's an attitude, okay? Obedience is an act of the will. And so no matter how dark it is, no matter how much you doubt, choose to obey because in choosing to obey and put your trust in God, you will experience that God is trustworthy. The way you deal with your doubt is by choosing to obey. The last thing is this. Make community habit. Make community habit. Let me... Um, Sidestep this for a minute, and I want to try and illustrate something. So um, we're going to play along. So close your eyes. This is like, uh, kinder- you're not in kindergarten. It's like kindergarten, maybe. 
Um, so close your eyes. We're going to play a little game. Okay. What I want you to do is visualize this, and I'm going to kind of walk you through it. So you're sitting there. I want you to visualize taking a whole bunch of Kleenexes out of a, a, a square Kleenex box, and you've got a fistful of Kleenexes, and I want you to picture taking those Kleenexes and dabbing all around your tongue with that chalky, dry, dusty, Kleenexy feel. And I want you to dab all around your, your tongue until you want to gag. You're so dry and parched with that. Does that make sense? So you're brushing and dabbing your tongue with Kleenex. Yeah. Okay. Now I want you to stay with that. Okay. You're dabbing that. Now I want you to picture me handing you a lemon that's been peeled. Now I want you to take that lemon in your hand, in your mind, and I want you to just tear into it with the biggest bite that you can possibly take out of that thing and start chewing that tart lemon in your mind. Okay, now look at me. You are now hypnotized. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) If you played along with me, you should be salivating right now. Just, are you salivating? Nothing happened but ideas that went into your head and you had a physical reaction to that. When we deal with the messiness of life, okay, we're going to run into the messiness of life. That's an input. And the output is stress and worry and doubt. Those of you that, that carry tension in your shoulders or your blood pressure goes up or whatever it is, inputs have outputs. And stress and worry coming in leads to an output of doubt. It leads to an output of doubt. So if we're going to combat doubt, we can't take away the inputs, right? That was uh, the whole idea of monastic living. I mean, just get away from people, away from society, away from culture, away from temptation, and let me hole up in a monastery to try and remove myself from the things that are going to tempt me and all this other stuff. Well, I don't think we can do that. So the input is going to be there. So what can we do? We can add other things as inputs, that when mixed together with the stress and worry of life, don't lead to the same doubt, they change the outcome. Does that make sense? I think chief of this is the idea of community. Here's a a, a verse out of Hebrews chapter 10. Look at what what it says. There's something really fascinating in this verse. It says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another in all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, now notice what's underlined here. Some are in the habit of doing. See, we think that not going to church is like normal, and we have to build a habit to go to church. I'm out of the habit of going to church. Oh, yeah, I'm just really not in that habit. We've got it all wrong. We were made as relational, communal beings. God made us for community. And when we don't go to church, when we don't get together and meet together on a regular basis, we have a habit of not going to church. Does that make sense? According to this verse, the habit isn't of going to church. The habit is of not going to church. And there's a lot of habits we could talk about. We need to add the habit of 
prayer and solitude and journaling, whatever, that would help with the inputs. But what we're trying to say is, let's get out of the habit of not being involved in community and into the habit of being involved in community. Why? Because there's encouragement there. The habit or, or the discipline of being in a church community is going to provide encouragement mixed with the stress and the difficulty of life that will change the outcome from one of doubt to one of more confidence and strength. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 3. So see to it, brothers. Hey, be vigilant. Work hard at it. Okay, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Okay, doubt and obedience go hand in hand. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Rather, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Stress comes in to our mind, and that's an input that leads to an output of doubt. The more doubt we have, the less we're going to trust or put our faith in God. The harder it is to, get to, to be obedient, the more alluring sin becomes. The more we fall victim to temptation, which continues the cycle. And it gets harder and harder the further we move out. Does that make sense? Okay. Input of difficult life leads to output of doubt. Doubt means it's harder to trust God. The harder it is to trust God, the harder it is to obey, the more grand the promises of sin. If you just do this, you'll be happy. It'll give you pleasure. You'll be satisfied. The more alluring it looks, the more we fall into that temptation and the cycle only gets worse like an addictive cycle. So what does God say to do? God says, as you have the habit of coming into community, rather than the habit of not being in community, there's going to be an ongoing, regular affirmation of encouraging and just being with one another to strengthen each other so that the difficulties that come in aren't of the same magnitude and don't feel as isolating so that when it comes to the output here, instead of doubt, we have something different called waiting on God. Or trusting God. Or taking it to prayer. Does that make sense? And so if we want to combat doubt, we, we first have to just get questions answered. Logical questions are barriers that need to be overcome. They can be removed by good, sound, logical arguments. We shouldn't be afraid of truth. I thought faith when I was like in my teens, I thought faith meant going into a corner and just completely shutting your eyes and just like doing, I, I, you know, I think I believe, I think I believe, and then like brainwashing yourself into it. That's not it at all. The more you get answers about something, the more you begin to trust it, right? So we need to get our questions answered. We need to choose to obey. And we need to make community habit. We need to make community habit. So I'll just um, say this in conclusion because I just want it to be simple that way. I think doubt is something that we need to be actively challenging. In the Psalms, why do people love reading the Psalms the older they get? I read the Psalms when I was like, 
22, and I didn't get it. I was like, I don't get it. I don't like these. I read them like three years later, and I couldn't get enough of it. Because the more you live, I think the more you begin to appreciate the language of the Psalms that puts into verbiage the felt emotions of the messiness of life and and the mystery of God. The psalmist cries out to God, and half the time there's no answer. He's just making known his his fears and his doubts and his concerns and his worries. And when we read that, we're, we're in some sense reassured that, you know what, I'm not alone. Like even these guys in Scripture had difficulties. But the idea was they, they, they actively went after it. They talked to God about their doubts. And so I think the simple thing here to walk away is that we can engage when we have doubt. We can, we can choose to do things. We don't have to just sit there passively. It's an act of the will. Can we worship a God who isn't obligated to explain all of his actions to us? Doubt is natural, and it's what we do with it that really matters. Doubt is natural. If you're coming in this morning and you're just beat up, if you don't know if God is faithful, if you don't know if you believe in God, hey, that's natural. It's what we do with it that matters. Again, Dostoevsky said, it is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> you, want, you want us to know you. All throughout Scripture, you're saying if we would draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. If we seek, we will find. So, Father, I just pray that we would make it a discipline in our lives to seek you, to put our trust in you, to to somehow look for you to make yourself known in that, that, that the rewards and the blessings that you've promised would come, that we'd be able to hang on to those and Like the Israelites in the Old Testament, we would tell stories of your faithfulness. And that our stories of when you've acted and answered prayer would would begin to provide us with something tangible to hold on to through um, times or seasons of doubt. So I just pray you'd give us just a robust faith. You'd give us grand stories. You'd give us long memories you would just build in us just a joy to seek you out. That we wouldn't be afraid of difficult questions and we wouldn't be afraid of doubt. But that we would respond in such a way that we would give you the opportunity to replace doubt with faith. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.